You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Good morning, everybody. Um, so great to see you. Was that Diddy? Oh. <laughs> hey, how's it going? <laughs> um, yeah, great. Well, as Nick said, uh, my name is David. Um, I'm one of the worship leaders here at Illini Life, and it's wonderful to be here um, sharing um, a little bit with you about uh, the next uh, phase in our study through the book of Acts. Um, if you were with us on fall retreat, I will I will admit to sort of, sort of as, an, as an aside. So if you're with us uh, in fall retreat, we got to hear from the wonderful Dr. Tammy Smith giving a really convicting, super awesome message. And if you were there, she made all sorts of statements about like, you know, we are God's masterpiece, and there was a, you know, created only one of us to do the exact things we needed to do. Um, and in spite of that, I'm just sort of just driving home from Fall Retreat. It's like, man, we got to hear such an awesome, convicting message. And then they come back next week and they get me. What a downgrade, man. So, so here's, so here's the deal. Here's the deal I'm willing to make with you. Okay. So, <laughs> so look, all right. So I, I can't do a Spiegel impression. Um, and I don't, more convic- like more problematically, I don't have like ten or twenty Bible verses to you know back up every point I make, but you can smack me in the face. Okay, is that a deal? <laughs> All right. Um, well, so okay, so we're moving back into retreat, right? We're starting to get back into routine a little bit. Um, we're four, you know, four, four weeks into the semester. Um, maybe you're starting to figure out what your daily routine, your weekly routine looks like for you. Maybe you're switching it up a little bit this semester. You know, we're back in person. We want to try some new things. Um, I will say that for me, you know, pandemic, no pandemic, my morning routine has looked pretty much the same um, throughout. It's, it stayed pretty consistent. Um, it, it includes denouncing lies from hell now. Again, thank you, Tammy. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's some variation of I start out with, you know, wake up, start out with a nice hot cup of coffee, make some breakfast for myself, and then proceed directly to just having an existential crisis right there on the floor, um, which is kind of the all stuff toenails this morning because I have a microphone. Um, and also a question for you, which is this. How sure are you of the path you're on? Now, I'm not getting like spiritual, like end of the world, are you going to heaven on you, like you know, usually we do in church. But that's an answer I hope you already know for yourself. And if you don't, by the way, please, 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 let's, let's, let's hang out afterwards. I want to talk about that with you and hear about that. But I'm talking right now, right? So with respect to like who you are as a person, what you're doing for work, what your major is, how you're choosing to spend your time, the smaller pictures, the little questions you ask yourself, how sure are you of the path you put yourself on each day? Well, as I said, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been going through a little halfway, little over halfway through a series on the Acts of the Apostles. And in that time, we've seen account after account of people who were pretty sure they had it all figured out. They had a consistent answer to that question for themselves, at least spiritually speaking. Right? They already had set in notions of who God is, what their role was in the kingdom, what God, who, what God was trying to do, who God was trying to reach. And every time we see the work of the Holy Spirit work through somebody, you know, usually one of the apostles, to upset the human understanding of things. And boy, does what we're talking about today upset a human understanding of things, right? Lots of things, actually. So, in fact, whether or not you've been a Christ follower for many years, 
or maybe you've just been around a lot of Christ followers, um, but you haven't taken that step yourself, this is probably one of the most overt displays of power and wisdom and subversive work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. It's the account of a man from Tarsus named Saul and a disciple, a Christ follower named Ananias. And both of these men have encounters with the Lord, which completely changed their relationship to the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it recontextualizes the spiritual path it appeared that they were on. So thematically, the story of Saul is, and Ananias is something like a spiritual sequel, you could call it, or like a counterpart to what Ashley Hobley talked to us about a couple weeks ago before the retreat, about how following Christ is about acknowledging the person of God and not just the power of God. Right? It reiterates that same theme, but it convicts us even more specifically. And by the end of it, we come to understand that as the person and the work of the Holy Spirit takes center stage in our hearts, the person and the work of ourselves needs to take a back seat, right? John 3.30, if it's been quoted a thousand times, you know, God must increase, I must decrease, right? We, we, we flesh out that notion a little bit. To claim the person of God, we have to intentionally, mindfully will ourselves to take a lesser part in the story to move our assumptions, our capacities, and ultimately our pride out of the way, to move in the direction where the spirit leads us. And I've said this is a well-known story and that's mostly for two reasons, right? Number one, it's really cool, right? So like on the surface, this is like a man of how, like it's a story of how a man named Saul came to know Jesus. It's a conversion story, as we like to say. And this is like, when we talk about conversion stories, this is like the gold standard of conversion stories. Am I right? Like, you know, Rod, yours was really cool. I loved it. I was blessed by it. Um, and, you, you know, if you've been around, you've heard my stories all, of, all over the place. And it usually starts with like, oh, well, you see, I was raised in a Christian home. And I really struggled with the hatred of our Cool. I literally met Jesus on a road trip and I was blind for three days. Like, where do you get that? Where do you go from there? And, you know, as far as testimonies go, like, it is pretty baller, even, if you, if you will excuse my uh, hip lingo slang. Sheesh indeed. <laughs> Sorry, I'm digging it. But then the other reason it's such a well-known account in the Bible, right, is it has implications for how the church would unfold for the rest of human history. Because the twist ending to the story, and like you may already know this again, Saul would go on to become Paul, right? Paul, he would become General Paul, he would become one of the most active apostles and apologetic and apologeticists and kingdom workers there has ever been. He go on to write most of what we know now to be the New Testament, and to this day is one of the best models scripture offers of discipleship, becoming a disciple, creating disciples. So it's no exaggeration to say that even on a surface level, what we're going to learn about the relationship between ourselves and the work of the Holy Spirit through Saul's story, that's knowledge that's going to inform a great deal of what it means to be a Christ follower today. So we're going to start in, we're in Acts chapter 9 this morning. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you're going to want to pull that out. If you want to pull that out and follow along, that's great. We'll also have the text um, up on the screen for you if that's easier for you. But we're in Acts chapter 9. We start in fairly suddenly on this narrative. Like we don't even get a previously on the Acts of the Apostles situation, right? Because we've, we've, we've taken a little break. We followed Peter and the Apostles for a little bit. But then, you know, Luke just kind of, Luke, the, uh, the uh, author of Acts, he just kind of drops this in. Um, but this is happening fairly continuously as far as we understand with what the apostles are doing, the story of Simon a couple weeks ago. 
But he jumps right in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if we found any belonging to the way, which is a way of specifically like describing followers of Jesus at this point, we weren't using Christ followers or Christians or the words we would use now. Any, anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And this is all the introduction really that we get to Saul in his own story. Um, so there's some contextual things we need to fill in so that we understand exactly why Saul's conversion of all the ones that happened in the course of the early church is especially significant. So the first thing we need to remember is we've actually kind of already met Saul, right? Um, I can't remember if we went over it specifically, but Acts chapter 7, where we learned a couple weeks ago uh, from Alan about the stoning of Stephen, that, that big old sermon. So Saul was present at that, right? He's not a particularly active person at the event. He kind of makes a little, you know, Marvel end credits cameo at the end. Um, but people were laying coats down at his feet, um, but we know he's there, and we are definitively told that he absolutely signed off on what was going on there, right? Um, like, he was good with what was happening with Stephen. This man is a blasphemer. Uh, what he's saying is morally and legally foul. The stoning is what needs to be happening. He was all for it. He loved that. And the second thing we need to remember is that Saul is, at this point, a religious zealot in service to the Jewish priests. In other words, even though we recognize that his actions are against the work of Christ at this point, he is a man of faith still. And maybe this was obvious to you as you read this um, in your small groups or in your independent study. Um, maybe it wasn't. Maybe you were like me. So like I came to Christ at a fairly young age. So I heard about Saul first in Sunday school. Right. Um, so like in relating the story to a child, you don't necessarily get all the nuance in. They can't really wrap your head around it. So it's, all you hear is like, he was a bad man who wanted to persecute all of God's people. That was my Sunday school teacher. But anyways, for a while, like that was the kind of image up there um, that sort of came to mind when I thought of like pictured Saul. By the way, if anyone knows what that specific picture is of or where it's from, I'll be super impressed. Um, deep cut. But like that was the aesthetic, right? Saul was this like biker gang looking rebel without a cause dude chains all over. He just wanted to like cause wanton violence for Christians because uh, he hated God and he just wanted to like be evil and mess up the system. And again, we understand the fact that that's all, what Saul was doing to the people in the church was evil and absolutely persecution. Um, he himself says as much um, when he shares his testimonies or when he shares his testimony and the story of his conversion um, throughout the New Testament. But to understand the full significance of this account, right, we need to know right off the front end that Saul was full in on the Jewish faith. He acknowledged the power of God, and he even believed in the coming of the Messiah. He just didn't believe that Jesus was that Messiah. Right? And he took the cultural narrative of the time that anyone who thought otherwise was a criminal and a blasphemer to an oppressive extreme. I mean, the narrative tells us that when his conversion story begins, he's on his way to Damascus, right? So for the record, Damascus was something of a metropolis um, at the time of this writing. So he starts out in Jerusalem, right? That's where the stuff with Stephen happens. Um, and he's on his way to Damascus. So Damascus is something, again, something of a metropolis. It was a big cultural haven, social haven uh, for Jewish people and Jewish culture. Uh, and it was something like 150 miles from Jerusalem. Um, so by most accounts, it would have taken him about a week's worth of traveling to make it there. So Paul's not out here just looking to like 
pick off Christians nearby for the sake of it at this point. He's on a capital M mission when we meet him in chapter 9. He absolutely believes he's doing the work of the Lord, and he's watched these disciples of a man called Jesus grow in popularity and try to tell people all these things about how he's the son of God. Um, and it is in his mind that this goes against everything that has come into Jewish understanding at this point. And he's got to go out and stop it. We can think of it almost as like a super dark perversion of the great commission Jesus gave his disciples, right? Instead of, you know, go out and make disciples of all nations. He's willing to go to the ends of the earth for his own notion of righteousness here. And for him, a town like Damascus being occupied by these teachings that he understood to be blasphemous, well, you know, we can look at that at his way of waging a little cultural warfare. Okay, so Saul's chilling in Jerusalem right now. He goes to the high priest. He says, yo, give me some authority to arrest these people and probably do a little worse than arrest after that. Um, and when Saul, when you know, after he starts going as Paul, starts preaching the gospel um, to others, recounts the story later on, he admits the arrest would be very deadly, but he says, give me the authority to arrest these people. He heads off. And this is what happens on the road going into verse three of our passage here. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So this is the Hollywood moment of the story, right? Saul's just walking down the road and then this miraculous bright light shines down. Um, He hears the voice of Jesus himself. And he said, again, can't get bigger than that. Can't Can't get more like spiritually cathartic than that. But we need to take stock of what we're seeing here, because remember, the story doesn't happen in a vacuum. So we know that Saul is a student of faith so far. He would have had every idea that Jesus existed. So, you know, by going out and persecuting these people and and, and ensuring that the true Messiah, you know, as the Jewish faith understood it was coming forth, he was out specifically denying Jesus' divinity at this point. He would have heard his teachings. He would have said, yeah, this is fine. He's not the Messiah. So it's significant at this point that Jesus specifically is the one that meets him. It's one of two things that should stand out to us as as we read this. Because throughout most of the accounts, we don't, don't, you know, after Jesus ascends up to heaven, we don't specifically hear from him. We hear a lot from God. We hear a lot from the Holy Spirit or the the Trinity is referred to wholesale as just the Lord um, a lot of the times. But Luke specifically mentions that Saul heard from Jesus in this case. And then the other thing we need to look out for um, is the Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So there are a few things here, right? Like we're getting into the relationship between Jesus and the church. That um, like Jesus has called himself, like Jesus has called himself. The relationship between Jesus and his people is almost like the, the one between a bride and a groom. Um, but there's something else here. Saul thought he was persecuting others, 
at this point. He thought he was persecuting people who were not like him. He thought he was persecuting people who were not doing the Lord's work, who were speaking out against what was in, what was in Scripture and what was in the law. But what does Jesus do here, right? Uno reverse guard. I don't know if I did that right. I felt really old doing that. But like, no, Saul, like, check it out. You're the one not doing my work, buddy. So let, let's, let's bring it to the logic here. Let's bring it to the logic here. Um, you just said, well, anyone who isn't doing the work of the Lord and anyone who is blaspheming or anyone who is not portraying God in the way that he actually is, uh, well, you just said he deserves death, right? Or at least, you know, deserving arrest and being brought to the courts. So I uh, got some bad news for you. You you know, by that logic, your days might be numbered, right? But that's why it's significant that we, we see that he met Jesus specifically, right? Because of the three, you know, we got the three, like, members of the Trinity, the God, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Through the Son, is, we have this thing called grace. Right. This was the part that Saul was missing. We know that as Christ followers, as modern day Christ followers. Um, Saul was missing grace, though. Right. And this is the first time in following God, um, in, in having an intellectual understanding about God and in doing what he thought was the work of the kingdom, that he experiences this for the first time. So it's not necessarily faith that Saul finds. It's grace. And grace is the thing that brings him forward and repositions his role in the story. Right? The resurrected Christ has come not only to put him on the path of, of following him, but also removing him from the evil he's lived in and also like saving him from the punishment that he deserves for that by his own logic and by like the broader logic of living in a, sin, of, in a sinful world um, in need of a savior. The Holy Spirit at this point takes Saul off his path. The Spirit says, close your eyes, Saul. Open your ears. Attend instead of act, right? You're not on the side of this journey that you think you're on. But whereas your path and capacity demanded arrest, it demanded persecution, mine calls for grace and unity, God says. In other words, the story starts with Saul's sense of righteousness, Saul's confidence um, in his faith and in his purpose and his direction being overtaken by God's grace. What we miss about the story too often because we're so concerned with it being a converted story um, is that Saul didn't just become a Christ follower that day. Right? He found out the work he thought he, he was having to do on his own, like forcing atonement for those who worked against God, it was already done ahead of him by the saving work of Jesus on the cross. What it took now is for Saul to shut down. He needed to stop seeing. He needed to stop speaking. He needed to go into Damascus, stay in the house of Judas for a while, and pray. And that's exactly what he does. So he's led to Damascus. Um, he was, and he fasts this entire time, too. Right? This is something very serious for him. He has just been convicted of the same thing he's convicted many other Christians of for years at this point. So he's got some thinking to do. So while we leave him there, let's move on to the second figure in this story, Ananias, right? So Saul's traveling companions pick him up, they lead him into Damascus. 
And then after that, Luke's right there. Luke writes this. We're going to pick up in verse 10 um, of our account now. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus called Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that we may regain his sight. Oh, that's convenient. Ananias happens to be that guy's name. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints of Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened. And then we hear the strings start to come in. At last I see the light. But, you know, again, what's happening is an amazing, like entirely supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And it's awesome. But we, and we should rejoice in the surface level of a man who like literally and spiritually gets his sight back. Can relate as someone whose glasses keep fucking up with the mask here. <laughs> like getting your sight back is awesome. But we need to dig into the dynamics of this conversation a little bit. Right? So for as little as we're told about Saul, we're told even less about Ananias, right? But we have a pretty good sense of how, you know, given how he responds to God's calling here, we have a pretty good sense of where his perspective is coming from and where he thinks he belongs um, in the story and in the kingdom work of God, right? We don't exactly know what Ananias does, you know, in the tradition of the church, but we do know what he doesn't like. He knows that we know that he's kept his ear to the ground, and we know that he's aware of Saul's reputation. You know, his immediate reaction, and I think this is pretty like relatable content, right? God tells you, hey, this person who is out to kill you is waiting in a house for you to come lay your hands on him. You could do that for me. It's like, okay, well, first of all, God, I, I don't know if you've you know, been paying attention, like reading newspapers recently, but I don't see, this guy's killed a whole bunch of your people. Um, he's been working on it. There's a, There's a, you know, Petition on Twitter right now for his cancellation. You, you, you got to get with things a little bit. Like, I'm not sure what you're trying to do with this guy. I don't know if this is some sick prank or whatever, but this man is our enemy. Or in any event, we are his. And I don't know why you want anything to do with him. And what's funny is, like, God makes very clear that Ananias doesn't really need to know. So there are, there are two pieces to this conversation. Number one, there's how Lord resp- there's how God responds to Ananias. What does he say, right? I sent a vision of a man specifically named Ananias who will go out and lay hands on him. Like, I've already seen this coming, Ananias. You're good. I've, I've taken it into consideration. This is the same God who, like, Took care of all his like took care of all your enemies before they've even like come to know you um, and stepped into your way. Right? 
God makes very clear right out the front that it's not the power of Ananias that's in question here. It's not even the courage or the belief of Ananias that's in question here. God has already paved the way. He just needs Ananias to walk on it. And then there's the second part of this, this little anecdote here, right? Where Ananias goes, he finds Saul praying in the house of Judas. And he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's no I in there. There's no my power. We, we, we aren't told that Ananias performed any miracles. It's not positioned um, as anything supernatural, right? What Ananias did is he went, he obeyed, he followed the path. And then there was unity. Right, Paul lost his sight when he met the Lord, when he met, when he met Christ and experienced grace for the first time. He gets it back when he experiences Christian fellowship for the first time, which I think is kind of cool, right? You walk into a room um, of your enemy and you call them brother. You say, hey, brother, hey, sister, hey, man, we're on the same side now. It's unusual, but because Ananias, you know, he had the courage, he did have the courage to do it. He found the courage to do it. He knew that God had things set out for him ahead of time. And so because of this unity and not because of Paul's immediate, you know, repentance or, or because of Ananias's um, power or, or, or these like super subversive progressive beliefs that he had, Paul is able to join in on the apostles later on. He gets his sight back. He dedicates himself to following Christ and preaching the gospel. Right, just as Saul is not the hero of the story for becoming a Christian, Ananias is not the hero of the story for making him one. The account establishes right, that Ananias was on a path based on things he had already perceived and understood about Saul, about people who you know, worked with you know, the, the, the power figures um, in the Jewish faith. But God in his wisdom said, I've already figured it out. Right? I've already paved a way for this man Saul, a path for us to get to where I need us to go. And Ananias, God says, I just need you to walk on it. How radical is that? Like, I can't, th I can't think of a time when I would, I would walk into a situation where I knew there was someone ready to kill me or do something really bad and say, hey, we're united now. We're on the same side. It'd be hard. Um, and even now, I think we get the impression that everything was hunky-dory after this, right? Saul can see now. Ananias is still, like, living. He's good. But make no mistake, right? It wasn't any easier at this point for anyone else. It's not an easy. It wasn't any easier for them to understand uh, than it is for us. It was a transition. Like the Jewish people of Damascus responded as you might expect them to respond. Like because it's you know Saul started immediately preaching the gospel at this point, right? He he took some time in study. The scripture suggests that he might have taken like three years um, receiving revelation and and getting himself up to speed, receiving a word from God. Um, but he, he, he went right in with, with sharing the word of the Lord with people and everyone was looking at him like seems sus, right? I would be too. Like the account says the Jews in Damascus were baffled. And I just love that word baffled. I think it's hilarious and because it'd be like, you know, I don't know if it, has anyone been to coffee tent on Friday, on Friday mornings? 
Yes, absolutely. If you haven't, you should come. It's fantastic. Um, it's a great place to like meet people and hang out and drink coffee and laugh. Um, and we always have a good time there. But so Alan Hobley run, you know, has been kind of heading that up for us. Um, and it would be like Alan, instead of coming to Coffee Town on Friday mornings, like heading over to the to like the middle of the quad and just start like screaming, you know, atheist screeds about how you know God doesn't exist and nothing matters, right? It would just be an it would be an immediate shift, and everyone in our community would be like, wait a minute, like that doesn't check out. And even people who have been coming, like in the campus community, who have coming been coming to Coffee Tent for years now, like, you know, we develop real relationships with these people. They'd recognize Alan, they'd be like, hold on, he's in a church, or at least I thought he was in a church. This transition doesn't make any sense. And that's because the Holy Spirit's not done. He's not done with Saul or Ananias, because as I've mentioned several times before, like, this is, it's a cool story. It's a, it's, a, it's a spectacular account of the Holy Spirit, but it isn't a fairy tale. Saul was filled with the power of the Spirit, but the account makes very clear that there was more to do. So Luke continues on. We're going to pick up in verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, kill Saul. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but the disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they didn't believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So this doesn't happen immediately after his conversation with Ananias. There's a little bit of time um, in between. But it's worth noting that Saul doesn't, like, immediately jump in and be copacetic with everybody, right? He encounters struggles with the Jews in Damascus and the Jews in the places he goes to preach. He encounters trouble with the disciples. They, do, they don't just welcome him in immediately. And it takes the testimony and the vouching of Barnabas and the other people who have watched him speak and have watched him grow um, in Christ to be, no, no, this guy's legit. Remember, God says something else back when he was talking to Ananias, right? He says, I will show him how much he has to suffer in my name. And we look at that and it sounds very, you know, it sounds very ominous right away, right? Oh, well, what does that mean? And this is, this is the part that gets left out in most um, when, when we like study this passage or think about this story. Saul still had to work things off, right? There's still justice to be served. At the end of the day, even though Saul was this, he seems like this sort of chosen one, isolated individual who was brought out from, you know, the mass populace to do the work of the Lord, but we're reminded in the same breath that he was a sinner just like the rest of us, right? He had a backstory where he had he had actively worked against the Holy Spirit or tried to, you know, insofar as a human is capable of doing that. And it took time, right? So now we're not only taking Saul out of the story, 
we're not taking Ananias's like beliefs out of the story. We're taking humanity out of the story. We're saying that, you know, even the best of us, even those who have already completed this journey that Saul's been on um, and for whom like conversion into Christianity is, is seems like this old, we, like we've moved past that. No, you haven't, right? This is, this is still the Holy Spirit's work and we're just in it. And sometimes that means things aren't going to go super smoothly. And sometimes that means we're not always going to fit into places where it seems like we're being called. And that's why questions like, what, you know, how sure are you of the path you're on are so difficult? Because it, it, it relies on our arbitration and our, our, our ability to assess what is a good path and what is an evil path. Right? What is a righteous path and what is an ignoble path? And you can look at any point in scripture or for that matter, any point in human history and like know without a shadow of a doubt that we humans are terrible arbiters of righteousness. So the Holy Spirit says, that's why it's important that this is my work, right? Not Saul's, not Ananias's, they walk the path but only one person is capable of truly assessing which paths are the righteous ones. And Saul would spend a great portion of his ministry knowing this, right? The number of, the number of times he is like, not self-deprecating, but very clear that his position is lower than that of God, is lower than that of the people he's serving, right? Christ is made more powerful, you know, Christ is made perfect in my weakness. He says in the Corinthians, just he says to the Corinthians. And that's why scripture makes explicit reference to none of Saul's accolades in that time. Right? We get some letters from him. He shares his testimony um, several times throughout the New, the New Testament. Um, but Paul himself, as he's recounting the story later on, um, so he'll share it several times um, over the course of Acts. And then he'll share it also in his letter to the Galatian church um, later in the New Testament. Um, and it's interesting to see how Paul takes himself out of his own narrative. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 15, he says this, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, and some translations use the, the phrase in me um, to reflect that Saul already knew of Christ but had not recognized him as Lord. Please to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. And he then goes on to describe several of the places where he preached and he prayed and he learned. And then he concludes his testimony with this. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. takes Saul out of the story, and thousands of years later, it takes us out of the story, right? It prevents us from looking at the story of Saul as a story of good and evil. It prevents us from saying, oh, Saul was once a bad guy, and now he's a good guy, and we're set. And that's the expectation we can use for all of our, for all of our um, work for the kingdom of God, right? We got to go from being bad people to being good people. 
And that's just not realistic, right? Because again, terrible arbiters of righteousness. The Holy Spirit doesn't just take us off evil paths and put us on good ones. And that's what this story communicates more than anything. Take out like the, the, the mystical direct encounters with Jesus and the Spirit. Um, take out like the seemingly like implausible like willingness with which Ananias goes and, and joins together with Saul. And what we take away is that the Holy Spirit doesn't take us off evil paths and put us on good ones. He reminds us that we aren't in as good a position to evaluate good paths and bad paths as we think we are. In other words, our justice is imperfect justice. And taking out the role of humans, taking out their beliefs, their, their, their preconceptions, as we've seen done throughout all of Acts so far that we've gone through, but most powerfully here. We're reminded that, that kingdom work is prioritizing the Holy Spirit's justice over ours. In closing, we take a look at these sort of three dynamics, right? Saul's sense of righteousness being overtaken by grace. Ananias's preconceived notions being taken over by, Holy, by the Holy Spirit's wisdom. The Lord's sense of justice overtaking our own sense of justice. There were humans involved in all of this, right? We see people choose, taking a choice to reach out and courage and walk along the path that God paved for us. What we don't see is their agency. What we don't see is them deciding, this is what my purpose is, or this is what I'm going to dedicate my life to doing. What we see is them deciding in that day and in that moment that they're going to prioritize the will of the Lord as they've, as they've had it brought to them. And that requires listening. That requires humility. It requires being willing to say, this thing I really want, or this passion I have, or this thing that drives me, I'm willing to let it go. And so as we consider this story that some of us have heard thousands of times, some of us are maybe just hearing today, um, and we wonder, if I've already become a Christian, what more do I have from this? Well, ask yourself, what drove your decision to come here today? If you're watching the live stream, what drove your decision to, I don't know, go on the, go on the Facebook feed or the social media feed that I know you're scrolling through right now? I see you. <laughs> I don't say this to be judgmental, but these are the things we're asking ourselves, right? The question we're asking ourselves isn't how sure are you of the path you're on? because we don't need to be sure. God is already sure for us. He's gone out before us. He set the path for us. The thing we should, we should be asking for is like, how well have I listened for the path I should be on? It's a harder question to ask. It's a more abstract question. It's a more abstract question to ask. 
But if we're going to take any sort of form of application from like these significant figures in the early church, these early apologists, these early um, defenders of the word of God, this humility and this self-subjugation is critical that we understand. And so as we go forward today, um, I would encourage us, let's, let's, let's take this on, right? Let's blind our own selves. We haven't seen the light from God, but let's blind ourselves to our own ambitions. Let's blind ourselves to the way we feel the world should work. Let's seek unity, let's seek justice, and let's just seek to listen. There's a great um, critic of the New Testament, John R.W. Stott, um, who was significant in, for the whole teaching team um, in kind of putting this series together. Um, and he, he has a quote that I'll leave us with, off with. The grace of God frees us from the bondage of pride, prejudice, and self-centeredness. And I don't know, particularly as an introspective person myself who tends to look inward more often than not, it's a powerful conviction to make sure I'm always listening. Um, And I hope it is for you too. Uh, So would you pray with me? And I'll invite the band up.